Hi, I'm Ethan Grumberg, and you're listening to the Eastern New York Vegetable News Podcast. As we're recording today, the winter green season is wrapping up for a lot of farms in eastern New York. Many farms in our region produce spinach, lettuce, mustards, and other cold-tolerant salad greens during the winter months for CSAs, winter farmers markets, and even for wholesale distribution. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Elizabeth Hodgden and Justin Reed, both of whom are fellow Cornell vegetable specialists, as well as Leon Vahaba, now of the Titusville Farm, but formerly the farm director at the Poughkeepsie Farm Project. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the lessons that we've all learned growing winter greens, uh, both from research trials, but as well uh, for commercial production. So thank you all for, for joining today. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks for having us. So let's start out by sharing a little bit with uh, the listeners about uh, each of your roles and experience growing winter greens. We're, we're lucky to have pretty good distribution across the, the state of New York here. Uh, Leanne and I are both in the Hudson Valley. Uh, Judd's out in the Finger Lakes, western New York uh, region, but also covers the entire state, it seems. Um, and Elizabeth is way up in the North Country, uh, practically in, in Canada. So maybe we can go around quick and we'll start with you, Judd. How has winter greens production taken hold in, in the regions that, that you serve? Yeah, sure. So I would say the western and central part of New York State has less winter green growers than, say, the Hudson Valley where you are, in, or way up north where Elizabeth is. Um, there's probably a few reasons for that. Um, we do have a lot of high tunnel slash greenhouse vegetable growers. But oftentimes those are, are idle in the wintertime. Uh, I think the markets haven't been quite as developed as they are in other parts of the state. Uh, climatically, um, we're of course uh, milder than the northern part of New York. Uh, but the western New York does see very high snowfall amounts because of the two Great Lakes that um, uh, generate uh, lake effect snow. So wintertime can be cloudy and again, high, high snow levels. So that can uh, slow down winter greens production compared to uh, the beautiful sunny southern portions where you are, Ethan. That's right. It's practically tropical down here in the Hudson Valley. Um, but uh, maybe, you know, with that as a, as a place of, of contrast to start, Leon, do you want to talk a little bit about your perception maybe about winter greens production more broadly in in the Hudson Valley area, but also specifically about maybe how uh, winter production has fit in both at the Poughkeepsie Farm Project and if you want, you know, how you see that being part of your marketing plan moving forward at Titusville. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, winter greens are a very important part of a lot of farms in the Hudson Valley. Um, I mean, there's a lot of farms that just want to grow during the summer and they want to go to like Mexico in the winter and not think about production. But um, it is sort of like an untapped market in the Hudson Valley and it's a huge opportunity. And I, I don't think we're meeting the demand, like coming anywhere close to meeting the demand of like what we could be um, if more farms actually produce winter green. So yeah, it's a huge, huge marketing opportunity, which is which is, you know, it's uh, one of the largest problems is really just like marketing during the summer and um, especially for small farms. You know, if you're going into the city, you have access to a lot more customers, but, you know, there's a limited supply of um, customers that are buying from local farms in the Hudson Valley. It's growing every year, but it's still it's still small compared to, you know, customers that go to grocery stores. So, um, 
And so for at the Poughkeepsie Farm Project, when I was there, um, I left about two years ago, but when I was there, um, it was a large part of our um, wholesale budget actually was through Wintergreens. I would say wholesale numbers, you know, maybe uh, we did about $140,000 in wholesale out of like uh, about 600,000 in total sales for the year. So it was, you know, roughly like around a quarter. Um, and winter greens accounted for about 30 or 40,000 of that. So it, it was a large, it was a large chunk. Um, our winter greens were mostly, we had two very large Harnois high tunnels. They were uh, 42 by 200 feet long. So it was about 18,000 square feet. We did minimally heat our greenhouses, which is sort of a it's not something that a lot of farmers do because the propane costs are pretty expensive. And especially now with the cost of fuel, I don't know, maybe we would have, if I was still there, I'd reevaluate whether we'd be doing minimal heating because yeah, the cost of fuel is, is extreme right now. Um, but um, yeah, we minimally heated and we produced a little bit of spinach, but mostly Salanova lettuce mixes. Um, so that's why we're minimally heating because they, uh, Salanova can handle like high twenties, but can't really handle much, much lower than that. I think that's a, a great introduction, and we're going to be diving into some of the details about some of the work that we did together at the Poughkeepsie Farm Project, or PFP as we usually just refer to it, um, about some of the the minimal heating, you know, setting different temperature thresholds. We'll get into all of that later on, but I think that's a, a good overview right now of, of kind of what you see as, as the landscape of winter greens production in the Hudson Valley, um, some of the marketing opportunities and challenges um, we are obviously much closer to New York City than Elizabeth, way up closer to Montreal than New York City, I guess. So, so Elizabeth, what, what does uh, winter greens production look like uh, across the, the North Country? I think a lot of the winter greens production in our area is focused in um, Essex County and Washington County. Um, we have a few different growers who are kind of sprinkled around the rest of the North Country. Um, with the increase in you know, construction and popularity of high tunnels, you know, a lot of growers, if they're not overwintering greens throughout the entire winter, they are benefiting from using those high tunnel structures for late fall, you know, to holiday market production. And then, you know, starting again in March or April, um, as, as you mentioned, we're pretty close to the Canadian border up here. I'm based up in Plattsburgh. And so it is more challenging to overwinter crops like lettuce up here without some minimal heat. Um, and this winter in particular has been really cold for us up here. We had many nights below zero and, um, you know, traveling around to different farms, we've seen cold damage. And um, that said, winter greens are an important part of of the business of, of some of the farms around here. And, you know, they help help growers maintain, you know, employees um, over the winter, relationships with, with stores and other wholesale markets. And then we do have some growers who are actually bringing their produce down to the city, and that's an important part of, of their marketing strategy. I've also heard from some growers that the winter greens, while maybe not a moneymaker in, you know, in itself, that they they're really an important part of their winter CSA shares. So having, you know, some winter spinach or other greens in with those, you know, root vegetables and potatoes really helps sell some of those winter um, CSA shares. So winter greens do have an important role up here in the north. And in extension, you know, we get questions from, from people fairly frequently just asking us about winter greens production. And I, 
I think there is potentially a growing interest in it up here. Yeah, and um, just to reiterate what Elizabeth was just saying, um, I think in terms of the customers, like maintaining your customers, that's actually one of the largest benefits of having winter greens is, you know, you basically stay on their mind so that when you start having product in May, they, they're just continuously buying from you. That, that was a huge benefit. Also for us, the number one, one of the, actually the number one reason why we started growing Witcher Greens was just to provide income and work for our employees over the winter. So we were in this bad cycle of sort of losing a lot of people, you know, in November and then having to rehire a large chunk of people in, in March. And it was, it was just getting tiring. So um, that was like the main reason why we started doing winter production was just to provide income and work for people over the winter. And, and uh, once we started doing that, I retained like the majority of my employees from year to year. It was fantastic. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. And it's something that I guess informally I've certainly observed on farms as well. You know, anyone who can p provide year round employment, you're going to have a leg up on retaining employees. And right now, especially in our region, that seems like probably the one of the biggest challenges for, for mid scale and smaller farms is finding an adequate workforce and, and finding employees with enough experience that they can really come to the farm and, and start contributing right off the bat. So you're not hitting that May window understaffed, having to train people, you know, you've got a crew that's, that's ready to, ready to roll. Very true. All right. Well, so now that we kind of have a, a sense of the landscape of what winter greens production looks like across the state, let's, let's pivot a little bit and, um, and talk about uh, some of the opportunities for, for research that we've identified. I think, as the conversation has already kind of indicated, there's a huge range of production practices being used on farms broadly, generally, but also really specifically when it comes to winter greens production. You know, Leon, you mentioned that uh, you use supplemental heat, uh, whereas many others do not. Elizabeth mentioned as well some of the limitations up north um, with, with the extreme climate and, and how that's kind of driven some folks to adopt supplemental minimal heat. Um, but that's that's not at all... Uh, uh, a common practice necessarily. Um, I think even beyond the use of minimal heat, when you talk to growers about their soil fertility practices and management, I think this is where I've seen the most variability, you know, especially when it comes to nitrogen. You've got some farms out there who, who front load, you know, right before uh, planting, usually in late September, early October, at least here in the Hudson Valley. I know those dates are going to be different, um, probably further up north hundreds upon hundreds of pounds of actual nitrogen. You know, I think, uh, Leon, you and I may have both been in the same room at the New England uh, Fruit and Vegetable Convention a couple of years ago in, in New Hampshire when uh, one of the presenters mentioned that they put on, I think, 600 pounds per acre of nitrogen in front of winter spinach production. And my jaw hit the floor. Yeah, mine too. I mean, this just, uh, it, it's a huge amount of nitrogen to be putting into these systems. Um, whereas you'll talk to other growers who really just kind of lean on uh, leftover fertility maybe from their summer cucumber or, or high tunnel tomato production and just are really kind of almost using that winter greens production like a cover crop to sop up that leftover um, fertility in the soil and, and make some money off of it. So, you know, kind of recognizing that there was this huge range of, of practices out there, I think it reinforced for all of us that there was work to be done to try to figure out what some so maybe best management practices were. So maybe Judd, um, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about um, 
some of the research that uh, that these observations have have motivated you to pursue, um, kind of first with our, our former colleague Amy Ivy, who is now retired, and uh, that work has continued with Elizabeth Hodgden. Yeah, yeah, great background there. Thanks, Ethan. The we shared those observations, and again, a lot of credit to uh, to Amy, who since retired uh, from Cornell Cooperative Extension, and. Uh, uh, our current colleague Elizabeth too has been has been critical in this work, but there, that question of what is that ideal nitrogen rate um, was was what we wanted to solve, um, and we coupled that question along with what's the best source of nitrogen, since most farms that are growing winter greens are organic, that limits uh, the the types of, of nitrogen we're going to use, particularly a soluble type of nitrogen. So we wanted to look at the source of the nitrogen. And then I think the other interesting question is, is planting date. Uh, because when we talk about planting date, really it's a, uh, uh, it's a proxy for talking about soil temperature uh, as well as day length, of course. Um, and that those colder soils, uh, it's, easy to imagine that less nitrogen is being mineralized and made uh, available to the plants. So we looked at planting date as well. An interesting result, I don't want to steal Elizabeth's thunder, but one of the things that emerged from our work is that instead of winter greens coasting on leftover nitrogen from a warm season crop such as tomatoes, on some of these farms it's the opposite. If someone's putting down 200 up to 600 pounds of nitrogen per acre on their winter greens, it turns out the summer crops are coasting on that leftover fertility. That was fascinating. That's a really interesting observation. Um, and not to dig too deeply into the nitrogen cycle for folks who uh, hated uh, chemistry and biology in high school, but you know, one of our big concerns with nitrogen in the field is, is leaching potential, right? That, uh, that soil nitrate is going to be pushed or percolate out of the, the root cell and, and enter the water table. Um, and that's not a concern really when we, when we look at high tunnels since they're protected from, from precipitation. And so that's, that's a very interesting result that you're going to have this reservoir, especially of soil available nitrogen um, left over there since you're not really at risk for leaching for that summer crop if you're putting that much on. But uh, at, I don't want to risk stealing too much of Elizabeth's thunder since it sounds like Judd maybe already did a little bit. So, so Elizabeth, maybe you can pick up and give us a little bit more um, detail on, on what you found, maybe some of your key findings over the last few years of, uh, of your collaborative research up north. Sure. Um, so over the past couple of years, um, we were able to conduct some replicated experiments at the Cornell Willsboro Research Farm in Essex County. Um, we're really fortunate to um, be able to work with Mike Davis and the farm crew there. Um, they have a, a beautiful research farm out there with a view of Lake Champlain, so I can't complain whenever I have the opportunity to spend a day working over there. So in the past couple, not this winter, but the past couple of winters, we tested two different nitrogen fertilizers, ProBooster, which is a mix of different animal and plant meals with some Chilean nitrate, as well as feather meal. Um, so that's 10.00 and 13.00 respectively. Um, and we were testing those two different fertilizer sources, uh, nitrogen sources at 
zero, 65, 130, and 200 pounds of nitrogen per acre. And we tested those different combination of source and rate on overwintered um, spinach in our unheated high tunnel at the research farm. And we harvested the spinach um, in the, the late fall and then again in the spring, and we compared yields. And then we also had the opportunity to, to replicate these treatments, um, these rates using peanut meal at the, the Arnold's Farm, Pleasant Valley Farm in Argyle, New York. Um, and so we were able to see some really interesting effects of our treatments and differences between those two sites. And so what we found actually was that there was relatively little difference between the treatments, which was a little bit surprising at the Willsboro farm. We did find that we were harvesting more spinach with the higher nitrogen rates, so specifically 130 and 200 pounds of nitrogen per acre with Pro Booster, so that in the fall, so our yields were higher in November with those treatments. And we saw kind of what we would expect with this yield response with increasing nitrogen. And I think that we were seeing higher yields with Pro Booster early on because in comparison with Feather Meal, Pro Booster has some of that quick release nitrogen. So I think that that was more readily available for the plants. And as a result, um, you know, we were able to harvest more spinach off of those plots. But then the differences between the treatments kind of evened out through the late winter and then the early spring. At the Arnold's though, they had a bit of a different situation with the experimental setup. So they are a commercial farm and um, you know, graciously allowed us to conduct this experiment in one of their high tunnels that they use for production. So they were following high tunnel tomatoes with our spinach. Um, and whereas at the Willsboro farm, we were moving the tunnel each winter so that we were incorporating sod and then planting our spinach. So it wasn't quite the same setup as a commercial farm. But what we found at the Arnold's was that there was a really, really striking difference between the treatments where, in fact, most of the spinach that we were harvesting from the zero and 65 pounds per acre end treatments was not marketable. The leaves were really small. They were quite yellow. Um, the plots really petered out quickly and didn't produce much spinach, whereas we harvested much more marketable spinach from the 130 and 200 pounds per acre treatments. And in fact, if I were to draw conclusions just from their site, I would say that 200 pounds of nitrogen per acre would be the rate that I would recommend. And in fact, that's the rate that they, they use on their farm as their standard. So just, you know, from those two years of experiments and what we saw at the Arnold's, I would recommend either 130 or 200 pounds of nitrogen per acre. And I should note that the 130 pounds per acre, that rate is similar to the Cornell field recommendations for you know, the main season spinach production. So it's kind of interesting that we, we kind of found that our recommendations are, are similar to that for, for the main growing season. Elizabeth, if I can jump in that that extra, say, 70 pounds of nitrogen to get to that 200 pound rate, um, we don't think that we're necessarily getting additional yield in a high tunnel uh, green setting compared to a field setting. But do you think maybe just that extra 70 pounds uh, of nitrogen is 
um, not not readily available to the plant and, and again gets used later? Perhaps, yeah. If I were to kind of visualize th what the plots looked like at the Pleasant Valley site, um, we certainly did see sus more sustained growth with that 200 pounds per acre rate. And we, we harvested from those plots until May. So we were looking at these treatments over quite a long period of time. Yeah, it's a very long season, isn't it? It is, yeah. One of the one of the interesting things, observations that I've noticed um, with winter production is, and we'll go into a little bit of this later with Ethan and talk about some of the research that we did, but um, I've, I've come to the conclusion that it's really important, even if you're not producing in a high tunnel during the summer and you're just doing winter production, that you have to keep the soil moist and you have to keep the biology active. So... Um, We'll go into it in a little bit, but, you know, Ethan and I did some replicated trials in two different high tunnels on my, on our farm. And one of the main differences is one of them, the soil was just like bone dry for like six weeks. And the other one was um, in high tunnel tomato production. And there was a stark difference when we actually started taking soil samples. And um, even though, you know, there was the same treatment um, in terms of, you know, the, the fertilizer that we added um, for fall production, but it took a long time for the, um, the dry high tunnel to, to, for that, for that fertilizer to get mineral mineralized. Cause we were using organic, um, mainly feather meal for our nitrogen. Um, so I, I think that's, that's something to kind of like throw into the equation is like, especially, you know, and, and if the Arnold's were producing tomatoes and they were using drip, it's, it's likely that like a large part of the upper surface of the soil was dry for a long period of time. And maybe it would just take a long time for the so for the soil biology to sort of come back and mineral mineralize that that fertility. Um, just something just something to throw in the in the in the discussion. But we, we definitely noticed differences between our two high tunnels. So, Lee and I think about the uh, the soil texture of those high tunnels that uh, you used to manage. They're very very sandy, and compare that to some of the sites where Elizabeth's working now where there's very high levels of organic matter. Um, so I, I would just want people to remember that the soil on their own farm is likely different from someone else's farm. So whatever recommendations they incorporate, they have to adjust them to their own site. Yeah, absolutely. I should also mention that during the experiment, we looked at soil nitrate levels as well as foliar nitrogen. And even though during some parts of the year in particular, the late winter and early spring, even even when we didn't see striking yield differences, we did see differences in soil nitrate. So those levels were as you would expect with increasing nitrogen, there was more nitrate in the soil, but we didn't see very strong differences in foliar nitrogen, which I thought was kind of interesting. So it makes me kind of wonder what's going on in, in, in cold soils with plant uptake and, um, yeah, what's going on with the soil biology and moisture. I think there's a lot of different interacting elements there. I, I think that's one of the biggest lingering questions for me, um, having reviewed the work that you and Judd have collaborated on, as well as, you know, reflecting back on the, the research that Leanne and I collaborated on at the PFP, um, and especially in light of you know, there's there's more and more research coming out, usually from forestry um, environments, which I know is radically different from what we're talking about, 
about the uptake of, of organic sources of nitrogen, especially in cold soils. And so we're talking about things like amino acids, but uh, it, it seems like there's increasing evidence that plants are very capable of taking up organic forms of nitrogen in, in cold environments. And I think a lot of us who have done work with winter production are also very aware that uh, ammonium is, is more available in, in colder soils rather than the plant preferred uh, nitrogen form of nitrate, which we usually think about um, in, in warmer soil environments in, in the field. And so it, it is, it's, uh, it's an area where there needs to be a lot more work done. I think we should all collaborate on another proposal is what it, what it sounds like. But, um, but absolutely, I, I, I think that those are good questions, Elizabeth. But I do, I want to really quick, you know, come back to that 200 pound per acre nitrogen recommendation that that you mentioned that you kind of landed on Elizabeth and just kick that to Leon as a as a commercial grower how does that land with you I mean does that feel like that is something that you have incorporated what's your kind of current nitrogen management plan when you're thinking about winter greens production um, would you consider adopting 200 pounds of nitrogen per acre uh, pre-plant yeah that's a good question um, I mean, the practice that we sort of settled on, um, before I left was about a hundred pounds of nitrogen per acre. Um, and like I said, we, um, that was pretty much mostly from, uh, feather meal. That's what I tended to use. Um, and for us, the, our largest problem during, for winter production was actually disease and pests. It wasn't really production. We always... I mean, we would do soil tests before we, before we did the, you know, the, the winter fertilization and we always had moderate amounts. I don't actually remember like how much nitrate we had in the soil, but you know, it, we always had moderate amounts of fertility sort of like left over and lingering. Um, but I just noticed if we over fertilized, we would have a lot, we would have much more problem with aphids and, um, Honestly, botrytis was our largest problem. Um, and that had to do with just, we, we never really let the greenhouses rest. And we, we would go from one host that was susceptible to botrytis to another. So tomatoes to winter greens, you know, um, and lettuce in particular. Um, so we'd get a lot of crown rot um, in our lettuce. Uh, after, you know, we with the Salanova, we'd usually be able to get like one really full, complete harvest. And then I'm assuming, you know, during that, during that cut, Botrytis would sort of get into the tissue and then we'd have like maybe our next cut would be 60%. And then if we ever did leave it for a third cut, it would be something like, you know, 30 to 40% um, harvest. Um, so yeah, for us, it was, it was mostly pest and disease in particular like aphids. So the practice that, like I said, we settled on is about hundred pounds of nitrogen. And then, um, you know, that would get us through until December. Um, and then, Starting at about like the end of January, early February, once we sort of get out of the Persephone period, I would start doing a couple of targeted um, Chilean applications, um, two to three, you know, maybe like three to four weeks apart. And from the research that Ethan and I did, it was amazing. After a Chilean application, the the nitrogen in the in the actual like plant tissue increased. Like I don't remember the actual amount, but it was it was it was significant, and we get really nice regrowth. Um, so I, I was just a little more conservative with our nitrogen use, um, and it, it worked out. I mean, I could I could see I could see a situation where you're in a high tunnel and you don't have minimal heating 
200 pounds is, you know, I, I could see that working out perfectly fine, you know, and then you have a little, you have, and that can actually get you through until, you know, the end of March, maybe when you start turning over your high tunnels and getting rid of your winter greens and then moving into your summer crops. Um, so yeah, I mean, 200 doesn't sound outrageous to me. 600 seems a bit like ridiculous, but 200 seems reasonable. Um, I, I was just always, I leaned more toward actually relying on a little bit of Chilean, um, to supplement. And Chilean nitrate can kind of be like a, a bad word for folks in the, uh, in the organic growing community, but maybe I'll, I'll put a bookmark in that thought and let's take a quick break before we dive into some of the lessons that we learned from this on-farm trial we keep referring to that we collaborated on at the PFP focused on supplemental heating um, and some targeted sort of uh, fertigations with Chilean nitrate in, in the spring at the PFP. So we'll be right back. The Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Program is one of the premier regional agricultural programs of Cornell Cooperative Extension serving a large multi-county area in the Champlain Valley, Capital Region, and Hudson Valley. The team's specialists worked together with Cornell faculty and county-based extension educators statewide to address the issues that impact the vegetable, tree fruit, small fruit, and grape industries. The Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Program provides educational programs and information to growers and agribusiness professionals arming them with the knowledge to profitably produce and market safe and healthful horticultural crops, contributing to the viability of farms and the economic well-being of New York State. More information on upcoming programs, production resources, and enrollment options to receive our digital newsletters is all available online at enych.cce.cornell.edu. having a conversation about winter greens production with Judson Reed, a vegetable specialist with the Cornell Vegetable Program based in Western New York in the Finger Lakes region, Elizabeth Hodgton, another Cornell Vegetable Specialist based up in the North Country in Plattsburgh, I'm Ethan Grumberg, a vegetable specialist uh, with Cornell based in the Hudson Valley, and we're joined by Leon Vahaba, the former farm director at the Poughkeepsie Farm Project and now the farm director at the Titusville Farm. Does anyone want to follow up with Leon for any follow-up questions before we dive into the um, the other research results? I just had a quick comment. Um, I, yeah, I think it is worth talking about some of the negative aspects of some of the higher rates of nitrogen fertility. Uh, Leon mentioned increased aphid and disease pressure. Those are important to consider as well. And then one thing that I've been thinking about that I'd love to learn learn more about is accumulation of nitrates in leafy greens and any human health impacts that that that, they, that, that could have. Um, it seems like it's an issue that maybe we don't worry about as much in the United States, but in just doing kind of a, a quick you know internet search, it seems like in Europe there there's more of a worry about this. But it's something that I think about when when folks are using these you know, over a hundred or 200 pounds of nitrogen. I'm just kind of wondering what, what's going on in the plant tissue and how is that impacting human health? Yeah, it, it is. It's a waste of, of money. Um, and Elizabeth, you know, your, your point about the human health impacts is one that actually came up in conversation with another regional grower, um, who, 
grew up in the Netherlands uh, when we were doing this work at the PFP. And I think I, I actually showed him some of the early tissue samples that we submitted um, from the spinach crop there after Leon had applied, I think that year, you know, Leon, you only front loaded maybe 70 pounds per acre of, of nitrogen, mostly as feather meal. So an organic form of nitrogen that would need to be mineralized by soil microbiology to, to convert it into that nitrate form. Um, so it's not all going to be available as nitrate right off the bat. Um, and, and we had such excessively high nitrogen concentration in, in that early first cut of, of greens. And that was his exact concern is, is from a human health perspective, you know, what is the effect of having this really concentrated uh, nitrogen in, in that foliar uh, tissue? So I, I think that absolutely that, that that's a, it's an important point. Um, and, and maybe maybe why we would see that more on spinach. So um, I'm not sure when you guys planted spinach, but for us, that's spinach is usually the first winter green that we plant. Because um, um, I forget who did the research on yields. Uh, maybe it was out of UVM or um, or UMass. I can't really remember the person who did the research. But basically, uh, there was um, yield research done on spinach, different spinach varieties, but also timing. And it... Um, I looked at this research years and years ago, so I'm not rem remembering all the details. But the earlier the earlier you plant the spinach, you actually can just get more cuttings off of it, so you get a lot or you know a higher cumulative amount uh, harvest quantity. Um, so we always planted our spinach fairly early, like I would say um, sometime in early September. Whereas like our Salanova, we really wouldn't start planting until late September, really early October. Um, so, so probably, you know, three to four weeks earlier than other things. So, um, so if we're fertilizing before that, then that would make sense that there would just be so much more nitrogen mineralized and then the spinach would uptake it more and it would have higher nitrate levels. Um, but I wonder, you know, I wonder if you waited to, to fertilize and, you know, planted your Salanova or your spinach in October, if you would have the same, same levels, I'm, I'm guessing not, I have no idea, but it's interesting. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting thought, but then the the trade offs come into mind, right? I mean, the reason you planted early is what you said already. You want that yield potential, and that's a challenge that I think is faced by a lot of growers, especially who are using that high tunnel space, their most you know valuable square footage on the farm, to try to churn out really high quality shoulder season tomatoes, right? So I I always meet growers every year who it's getting to that time they want to put their spinach crop in but they've got a huge flush of gorgeous tomatoes that are going to be ripe in like another week. And they just want to leave them in. They just mm -hmm. want to leave them in. They can see the dollar signs, you know, it's like the field tomato production has kind of tanked. So there's another uptick in the, the market price for, for that crop. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, maybe there are other benefits in addition to just that yield um, that, uh, that we could see by playing around with, with those planting dates a little bit. So let's maybe, pivot quick. Um, and, you know, if Judd and Elizabeth, if you have questions that come up during this conversation, please feel free to interject. But we've been referring to this, um, this research that we did at the PFP in the winter of 2017 to 2018, Leon, um, thanks in part to the uh, generous support of a Northeast SARE partnership grant. Um, we were able to look at at that point, one of the questions that uh, that you had specifically and was part of kind of a broader Northeast winter growers 
um, kind of group uh, discussion is what is the right temperature if you do have supplemental heat if you have the capacity to heat your tunnels let's say to 32 degrees to 28 degrees there are all these different sort of thresholds that people would throw out kind of dogmatically like no 28 is the number stick with 28 anything else is is ridiculous um, but you know I think you had had conversations with growers who were going up to 40 degrees in their tunnels um, yeah and, and so that was one of the questions that we wanted to, to kind of get some more information on is, you know, is there a, a benefit to going much above freezing? Um, but we also had these other questions about what was going to be the impact on, on nitrogen. We've been talking about mineralization rates, right? And I think it's probably been made obvious at this point in the conversation, you know, that fertilizer that's applied has to be broken down. By microbes in the soil, microbial activity is fueled largely by soil temperature. So once it starts getting too cold, those microbes kind of slow down and you're not getting that same release of nitrate, which is the preferred form of nitrogen for uptake in, into plants that we talk about, right? So that's when we're talking about nitrogen mineralization and mineralization rates. That's that's what we're that's what we're referring to. So, you know, there are these really complex interrelated systems. And, and so that was the fundamental question, though, is is what was going to be the impact of these two different heating thresholds. And I think after a lot of back and forth, Leon, you and I, you and I eventually settled on having one tunnel, the cold tunnel set at 33 degrees Fahrenheit. And then the, the warm tunnel, the tropical uh, humid tropics tunnel set at 40 degrees mm -hmm. Fahrenheit. And then we didn't touch those thermostats for the entire season. Um, and we just wanted to see what happened. So um, these, again, you know, you mentioned, Leon, these were Harnois uh, Ridge Vent, beautiful uh, tunnels that were 42 feet wide by about 200 feet long. They were equipped with high efficiency Modi 93 propane heaters. Um, two of them. Two of them, one on each end, right? Um, but I guess I'll say this and then I'm going to kick it over to you, Leon. I promise I'm going to stop talking. We have a full, very detailed final report that's available online on the SARE reporting website that we will link to in the episode description so that if you really want to geek out on all the nitty gritty details of this production system, you'll have access to that information. But just to like skip right to the juicy bits, uh, Leon, what were like the big take home messages or lessons learned for you from the trials that we did together there? One of the largest lessons learned was a seven degree difference doesn't seem very much, but it was almost double the amount of propane use that we used for the year. So, um, and I don't, I don't remember, we didn't, there wasn't enough of a benefit in our system to justify that double propane cost. Um, so that was sort of the, the most glaring, um, obvious thing. Um, Although with that said, um, we did have, we did notice that we would get larger yields starting in Feb February-ish, like on a, on a second cut or a third cut um, with the extra heat. So maybe not having your high tunnels at 40 degrees for the entire year, but maybe if you wanted to say get a third cut on Salanova and your crop was still looking really healthy, then maybe bump the heat up to 40 and and that would actually that would actually that could actually financially work out so yeah, yeah just to reiterate so yeah maybe not maybe not the increased time for the whole season but just you know for a month or whatever um to to get a little extra yield boost um the other thing that really stuck out was we actually had a lot more disease pressure in the tunnel that was warmer 
So that's why I say like if your crop is healthy and you're not seeing a lot of disease, then maybe increasing the heat because um, it I it probably offset you know the amount of disease that we had the the, the amount of yield boost that we could have had compared to the increase in yield in, increase in disease sort of they kind of cancel each other out. That was sort of my my take my takeaway. Um, all the other stuff was super interesting, you know, in terms of like actually taking uh, tissue samples and seeing the nitrate levels and um, I learned a lot during this, um, during this, during this period on just sort of like winter production. Um, also, you know, not it, all the greenhouses are different. All your heating systems are so different. Um, we had, I think our, our systems were 250, each heater was 250,000 BTUs. Um, and those are, those are designed when you design those systems, you really design them to, for a certain, um, outside temperature, um, sort of, you know, minimum outside or minimum outside temperatures. And, and 33 wasn't really enough to prevent damage on really cold nights. Like our heaters couldn't, when if the temperature ever dropped below, like, or got close to zero, 33 wasn't really enough. When we actually looked at the temperature graphs, you know, oftentimes the temperature would dip into the 28, 27 degrees inside, even though it was set at 33. So that was really interesting. And subsequently, I actually start, I actually set the temperature to 30 to 35 uh, to compensate a little bit for that. Um, so that was something that was actually a takeaway that I actually um, I put into practice afterwards. Um, well, well, on, on that issue specifically, I mean, we actually have detailed temperature data that's that's in that report, both from the ambient air temperature in the tunnel, outside ambient air temperature, and at two different soil depths to see kind of what's happening um, in all those different sort of microenvironments in the tunnel. But speaking of a microenvironment in in the tunnel, I think one thing that I've definitely noticed, not just at the PFP during that research trial, but at other farms that use minimal heating is you always end up with an edge effect, yeah. right? And so you get the cold creeping in from the edge of a tunnel. And so a tunnel that's set at 35 degrees, if it's getting down to the temperatures that Elizabeth mentioned earlier, you know, we've had a very bitterly cold, at least for the, the Hudson Valley region winter this year as well. I've seen a lot of cold damage on the edges of tunnels that are heated. I've seen, in fact, even a, a burst irrigation pipe hmm. uh, from it freezing on the edge of a tunnel that was minimally heated as, as well. Um, and so I think this is where, you know, this is maybe a little bit off topic, not uh, within the scope of this conversation. But I think a lot of winter greens growers that I'm, I'm seeing are who are designing a new system and, and focusing on maximizing or designing that that system for winter greens production are looking at below ground heat sources. Um, and I think, you know, Seth Jacobs up uh, kind of in, in your neck of the woods. Elizabeth is someone who comes to mind who I think has played around with these systems a little bit as well, but getting that heat right where it's needed at the plant level rather than, you know, I mean, how high off the ground were your, your modine heaters at the PFP? Uh, I mean, they were above the, the purlin. So, you know, I forget what that was, nine feet, 10 feet. Right. Right. So, you know, it's, it's a matter of uh, understanding if that's heat, if that heat is rising, you know, is that where you want your heat to be generated for, for winter greens production? Um, I do want to back up though for a second too. And, and, you know, Leon, you threw out the term Persephone period um, earlier. And I think, you know, for, for most winter greens uh, growers, that's a, a term that Elliot Coleman coined a number of years ago that kind of refers to that period from December through mid-February where day length is, is just so short that, um, you really can't expect meaningful growth out of out of a crop, 
And so that was actually, that was one of the other questions that we had going into this, right? Is, is heat alone going to be enough to fuel enough yield bump in a winter greens environment without supplemental lighting to make it worth the money? And I think that you already, you already said this is one of your takeaways. We did see an increase in yield, but it was complicated by disease and pests and all this other stuff. Um, you know, just to throw out, uh, this was not a properly replicated trial like we would usually do as the scientific gold standard because it was a commercial farm. You only had two tunnels and uh, we didn't want to spend too many thousands of dollars on extra propane. Um, so um, it, it was just a side by side kind of more demonstration trial as a result. Um, but basically what we saw, at least in that setting, was that any yield bump that we got in the warmer tunnel you lost all that money by paying the extra amount on your propane bill. So from a sustainability perspective, it's like, <laughs> why are we going to churn through all that propane just to break even again <laughs> when, when we could drop the temperature by seven degrees and, and maybe not have the same yield, but make as much money. Yeah. Right. Um, but that was another question that, that emerged. And I don't think many winter greens growers that I work with are interested in supplemental lighting. Those systems can be really expensive. Um, you start talking to people who sell them and they're much more set up for a controlled environment, ag systems with hydroponics rather than someone trying to, you know, grow in ground tomatoes and then transition to, to greens. But that, that was a question that emerged, right? Is, mm -hmm. uh, if someone were to consider throwing in a supplemental lighting system, and then minimally heat. Well, we start to see really interesting differences there. Yeah. In and terms I, yeah. And I think at that point, you just get another high tunnel, <laughs> you know, just um, I, I think the high tunnels, I mean, steel prices are high right now. But but I mean, if you have the space, just get another high tunnel as opposed to getting into more complicated lights and heating systems. And um, and I actually I took that lesson to heart, you know, on the at the Titusville farm that I'm building currently we're going to have a significant amount of wind, of high tunnel um, acreage, um, you know, more than we actually need so that we, we could, so we can get a better rotation, A. So we're not just going, you know, so so we can actually take take a high tunnel out of production for like a half a season and maybe grow a cover crop. Um, you know, I, I think the lesson is, is just these these high tunnel spaces are so valuable and and every every farmer wants to eke every dollar that they possibly can out of it. But then, but then we end up with problems. Um, and I don't see, I haven't met a single farmer that hasn't, hasn't said that, you know, and that don't have problems in their high tunnels. So, you know, if we can, if we can just afford and the, you know, these high tunnels, they pay for themselves in a couple of seasons, you know, it's a, it, there, there's huge return on these things. So, you know, if we have the space and we can afford it and we can put it into a system or, um, you know, just, let's just get more high tunnels or, you know, if any uh, government officials listening out there, you know, like, Hey, Increase funding for high tunnels on small, small vegetable farms. And, and Leon, this is a good time to reveal that you get a, a certain percent cut for every referral, right? For yes, every exactly. uh, Harnois tunnel built in the exactly, Northeast, is that right? Exactly. So make sure to mention Leon's name. Uh, no, just, just kidding on that in case anyone's actually considering that. Um, I, I do want to bring the conversation back to nitrogen for just a second, though. And, you know, Leon, you mentioned that in the winter of 2017 to 2018, when we did this work, you front loaded with about 70 pounds per acre. I believe we, we had slightly different rates in each tunnel because we had different residual um, soil nitrate based on the practices you described earlier. One tunnel had been in in summer production of, of mostly high tunnel tomatoes. The other one 
you left to become uh, the Sahara Desert, basically. <laughs> I mean, it was a dust bowl in there, completely parched dry, no irrigation, nothing growing in there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the tunnel where we had much lower soil nitrate, as you might expect. But that's also where we saw that interesting for me, um, that lag in mineralization of the fertilizer that you applied. Um, and, and again, the, the hypothesis coming out of it being that since you're sustaining your soil microbiology in the other tunnel, those microbes were available, active, ready to break down that fertilizer, make it plant available much faster where you had the summer crop compared to where you were like storing bins of onions, trying to feel like, you know, just cure some crops basically. Um, so how, let me talk about that. And then we're going to go into nitrogen for just a a couple minutes before we wrap up. Um, how, how did that influence your management? Uh, moving forward. What, what did, did you make any changes? Did you, I think I remember you played around with a a summer cover crop at one point in that, that tunnel that wasn't growing tomatoes. Yeah. We planted buckwheat for, we we did that once. (laughs) Um, it was, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to deal with cover crop inside a high tunnel, especially if you don't have a lot of farms now are moving to sort of, a not polycarbonate end walls and they're moving more toward like a curtain that rolls up. That, that's actually what, how we're designing our new, all of our high tunnels at our new farm so that we can actually drive, easily drive through with our equipment. Um, so yeah, and that's in, in our new situation, that that is how um, we will manage, we will be planting cover crops in those because we can you can easily manage it. But I that wasn't the case at the Poughkeepsie Farm Project. We had um, rigid polycarbonate end walls, so it's hard to, but yeah, I mean, that is one of the changes that I made. I, um, even if, if a tunnel was fallow during the summer for a, a set period of time, I would actually start watering, you know, four to six weeks ahead of time before we were going to start, you know, uh, before we were going to start fertilizing and, and thinking about planting a crop um, just to get the, and, and I would actually, I would actually recommend not letting a high tunnel totally dry out. I mean, you know, even if you watered it every three to four weeks, you know, with the deep watering, I, I, that was a, that was definitely something that came out of this research for me. All right, so so I promised I'd bring it back to nitrogen because that's that's supposed to be the focus of the conversation. <clears throat> so, Leon, you know, you mentioned that we took tissue samples. We also took soil available nitrate tests. I think it was every two weeks throughout the entire winter. So we have all that data available in the final report as well. And it was, I think, for me coming out of that Persephone period, and you mentioned this already, Leon. I think the amount of nitrogen that you front loaded in your system was sufficient to take your crop pretty much through January. And then once it kind of started ramping back up as we were getting a little bit longer day length, we saw those tissue concentrations of nitrogen start to dip below the optimum level pretty quickly. And that's where you already mentioned, you you stole my thunder. <laughs> you came in, um, you were set up to do really precise targeted fertigations with a soluble Chilean nitrate product. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, you were not putting a lot out. You were really, it was like six to eight pounds, pounds per acre. Yeah, it was not much. But like you said, doing it several times over a fairly short interval. And it was, that was for me really impressive to see those levels that were starting to dip below the optimum level in the foliar tissue samples pop right back up into the sufficient range. I think after the first or second. Mm-hmm. 
feeding. And, and some of that may have been because soil tempers were increasing a little bit. Yep. You know, so you can't totally rule that out. But but it was mostly because of the Chilean. It, it seems like that had an impact. And that would be worth replicating and, and, and seeing if we could see that similar trend again. But I think, you know, back to Judd's point about the cost of inputs and the cost of inputs, especially this year, you know, if you're equipped and most high tunnel growers are equipped to fertigate, you know, as opposed to front loading with all that nitrogen and hoping that by just dumping a lot extra on, you're going to get enough mineralization to feed your crop, but coming in with targeted feedings in the spring when that crop actually starts growing again, I thought for me, that was one of the biggest takeaways. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of growers have very strong feelings about Chilean nitrate for a number of reasons. On the extension end, one of our concerns is the accumulation of salts in high tunnels that don't get that sort of leaching effect. Um, and Chilean nitrate is sodium nitrate. It's, 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 I mean, all fertilizers are salts, but that one in particular can lead to salt increase really quickly. One thing I'm very interested in is there in the last couple of years have been a lot of new uh, liquid fertilizers that are OMRI listed that are soy hydrolysate based mm -hmm. that have much lower salt indexes, but have very high concentrations of nitrogen. For growers who don't want to use Chilean, I would love to see someone take that similar approach of, of maybe only putting on half or less than half up front of their nitrogen budget in a winter greens environment and coming in with targeted supplemental fertigations with one of these newer hydrolysate products and see if we, we could see the same same mm -hmm. results. Yeah. Yeah, that would be interesting. And, and I also took this research even a step further. What I started doing... So it, let's say we get a second cut of Salanova in late January, um, and then we wanted to try to eke out one more quick crop for putting in tomatoes, which I, I sometimes would do. Um, I would actually I would actually top dress with just a little bit of Chilean um, as opposed to putting down an organic fertilizer, um, just a little bit. I mean, literally just a few pounds. I mean, a, a couple of bags of Chilean nitrate would last us the entire year. You know, we weren't putting down much and. Um, that worked out incredibly well, you know, and uh, it allowed us to get pull off like a, a 30 to 50 day crop before tomatoes, you know, which I, I don't know if we would have been able to do that otherwise if we were using just like an organic fertilizer. It might not have had enough time to mineralize or the temperature of the soil would have been too, too cold. So, yeah, yeah, big fan of big fan of uh, soluble fertilizers in uh, <laughs> in targeted uses. You know, I mean, soluble fertilizers, I mean, like a liquid is it's expensive, so you kind of have to, you have to do the cost benefit analysis. I mean, uh, you know, anytime you have your fertility in a liquid form, it's just a lot more expensive. So especially with shipping costs right now. So. Yeah. So Leon, you and I have been monopolizing the conversation for the last few minutes. Uh, Judd or Elizabeth, do you have any questions for, for Leon on the work that we've been describing or, or comments from your own experiences that you want to share? I, I think I'll, I'll just throw in that, uh, this use of cover crops and, and managing nitrogen um, has, uh, the, has been a parallel uh, set of research for us in high tunnels, but there we were growing, are growing cover crops in the winter time, ideally to, in a sense, scavenge any leftover nitrogen and fix it as well, because we are looking at some legumes and then incorporating that before a warm season crop. Um, so it doesn't, that that system doesn't fit well into what Leon's sharing of this rapid turnover um, of of crops, which does lend itself to the the 
appropriate use of those soluble fertilizers. Um, and I, I just share your interest, Ethan, as well in those those higher nitrogen soluble OMRI materials. I think some of them are as high as like 16%. Um, how well do they work? And I'm also interested in how cost effective they are, because I think I've seen some pretty steep prices on those materials. Yeah, so so Judd, I mean, one thought is, and, and we did this a little bit, um, but one thought is actually growing pea, shirts, pea shoots in a high tunnel. So um, sometimes in February, we would put down um, a really thick carpet of like a 4110P um, and, um, you know, uh, work it in just like a little bit, roll it. And then uh, we would get a, a quick little pea shoot harvest out of that. And then if you let that go, if it grows back, um, you know, that, that essentially turns into a cover crop. Um, so that's one way to sort of like earn a, earn a, a, a prop, you know, earn a return on the, on the cover crop, you know, earn a return on a crop, but also get a cover crop. So that, that might be an interesting thing to kind of like look into. Yeah. Yeah. I like that approach. And how did you harvest that? Uh, we did it by hand, but, um, at, at our, at our new farm at Titusville farm, we actually, we, um, we've bought an Ornamec, um, tractor, tractor pulled harvester. So we'll, we'll be doing it with that. Yeah, I'll be curious how that works because that that would be adding that efficiency to that dense of a of a crop. It seems like it makes sense. It's cool. Yeah. Any other final thoughts, questions, comments from from any of us on the on the call? Yeah, I would I would I would suggest taking a look at that research. Um, that uh, I don't know. Do you have show notes on the show? We, we do. We, uh, we have an episode description, at least. So I know that Elizabeth has some of her research results and uh, that, that uh, from the research she's collaborated with Judd on written up so we can include links to, to those write-ups as well as the SARE write-up from the minimal heating trial that we did with support from Northeast SARE, Leon. Um, so make sure to look through that episode description, all the resources that are available there. Um, otherwise, I want to thank Judd, Elizabeth, and Leon for joining today, and uh, hopefully we can have more conversations like this moving forward. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, everyone. This has been really informative. Thanks for listening to the Eastern New York Veg News Podcast. For more information on the Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Program, visit our website at enych.cce.cornell.edu. Also, be sure to check out the links included in the episode description. Thanks to Andy Gallimberti for editing this episode. 